very appropriate song for the series we're in. As we've been looking at the life of Job for the last five weeks now, we've got two more weeks in the series, a person who, if you could describe a life at the, as you read the first two chapters of Job, uh, I would consider he, he lived a worn life at that point. Um, as I was thinking about uh, our church, Great Oaks, uh, we're not kind of standard as far as churches in America. Um, I was doing a study the other day of churches in America and what kind of, uh, you know, how they're going and things. Not, not, not great news as well. But uh, this, this past year, we've had a really good year in the life of the church. And uh, as I look around, though, I, I realize that part of the deal at Great Oaks is that we're not made up of uh, just people who grew up in church. Uh, over the years, I've talked to a lot of people who've come to the doors of Great Oaks who are still here who may have described themselves at one time as either unchurched before they came here or de-churched. And they're going, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me tell you what that means. Unchurched people are people that you would describe yourself as somebody who has little or no church experience. Uh, you would be called a CEO Christian. Christmas, Easter only. And uh, so maybe that was your experience before you came, showed up at Great Oaks somewhere along the way. Uh, the de-church person, though, is not the same. A de-church person would be someone who at one time in their life was maybe very involved in the life of a church, but for one reason or another left church and have not been back for a while and showed up one day here at Great Oaks. And, uh, and so uh, there's many reasons people walk away from church. I've had people tell me before, you know, well, you know, I don't really need church. I grew up in a church. You know, when I got in college, it, the church kind of crimped my lifestyle. And so I've heard that excuse before, and I've had other people, other reasons. But, you know, one of the, sometimes it's the, the fault of the church itself, though, because sometimes the church, and I'm talking about the church universal, uh, many reasons um, is one, one reason that sometimes people leave churches is because they're frustrated and confused about all the rules we have. You know we had rules? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe not exactly what you think. For instance, um, I remember a few years ago when we first came here, I've been here 11 years at, at Great Oaks, and it kind of shows you where the, the growth is in certain areas. And I remember the first year we were here, uh, we had like our son was in, in middle school, and so uh, we were trying to develop a middle school group, and we had like 10 or 12 kids. And so middle school, the middle school group met at our house. I'd like to see that happen in, in any of your houses. We have sometimes 100 kids here uh, on Wednesday nights during the school year for middle school, 100 kids. You did, I didn't stutter. And uh, so there's a lot of kids, so there's a lot of growth there. But the issue is, is uh, I remember back when we were doing that, you know, we were just trying to do our best to uh, uh, figure out how to do the middle school ministry here. And we, we would do three, three nights or three Wednesdays a month. We would do uh, Bible study at our house and have some different things. And I wasn't leading that. I had some other people leading that. My wife and a couple other people were leading that. And they were trying to find ways of, you know, grabbing hold of youth in the community and trying to find out where they were. And so one of the things they asked them, they said, well, what are some things? And so one night a month, uh, they would have an a, a activity night. And they would go somewhere and do stuff together. And they told, give us some list of things. And so they gave them all kinds of things. And one of the things they said they wanted to do and this is middle schoolers now, they said they wanted to learn to dance. And I'm going, you got to learn to dance. Well, yeah, we're getting ready to go to high school, and in high school we've got dances. You know, and we're going like, I don't know if we're going to teach you how to dance, you know, because, well, you, I don't know, I, I don't know if you noticed, most, most of us are white people here, and the only dance that most white people know is what? The electric slide. I mean, that's the only thing you know. Uh, because, and it, because you, let me tell you, I do a lot of weddings, and you go to, you go, to, go to the reception, and they go up to the DJ, and it's always, you know, do the electric slide, you know. 
And I'm not talking about the cha-cha slide. They'd tell you what to do in that one. I mean, anybody can do that one. But the electric slide, you actually have, have to know the moves, you know. And so uh, we were trying to figure, okay, well, maybe, how about some line dancing? Let's try that. And so somebody said, sure. The kids thought, that would be great. So we didn't know where to go. We didn't have a clue what to do. We just moved here, you know. And so uh, somebody suggested this place down in Pekin. That they were gonna, I think it was in Pekin. Maybe it was on Farmington Road. I'm not really sure where it's at. But, uh, but the thing was, it was ended up, and so uh, my wife and a couple other leaders, you know, and this was recommended, highly recommended by some church people. Um, we, uh, took, took, they took the kids down there, and they got there, and they found out it was kind of a country music bar uh, that was down there. And it had a room where they taught line dancing in it, you know. And, and now the kid, it wasn't connected to the bar part, but it was right next to it as well. So it was kind of like in the same parking lot, you know. This was like way before people were getting blasted or anything like that, you know. And so this is early in the evening, like 7 o'clock or something like that. And so they took them there. The kids had a great time. They actually wanted to go back. But after my wife and a couple other leaders said, well, probably not. It was great. My wife told me she'd love to go back. But uh, she likes to dance, by the way. And, uh, and so the thing is, is that they did it. And well, it's interesting now, you know, what we do here at Great Oaks during, uh, during cross-training. What do you do? Electric slide. You know, the only dance white people know. Uh, <laughs> maybe the cha-cha slide. I don't know. But we do some of that stuff, too. But the issue was, I'll, I'll never forget it, and I'll tell you that because a couple of weeks, and I didn't tell, I ever told my wife this because I know she'd be really upset, a couple of weeks later, when I was in the parking lot of Jubilee, when it used to be Jubilee over here, these two people came up to me, these two guys. And I'd seen them once or twice at church, but I didn't really know them very well. And that's back when we were running at like 120, so it was not as hard to know everybody. And um, came up to me and kind of got right in my face. And they said to me, we understand you took the, the kids dancing. Yeah, yeah, and, and. Uh, well, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't dance. And I'm going, and uh, where is that verse? They couldn't tell me. But they said, well, I don't know where it's at, but I just know I grew up that way, and that's what we should do. If you're going to be a kind of church I'm going to go to, you know, you can't teach anybody dance because it's sinful. Well, the whole time that they were telling me this, and they're up in my face, I mean, like this real close, the whole time they were puffing away on cigarettes, just blowing smoke in my face. And I was thinking in my mind, this is my thought, this is my thought process, is no one's ever died of secondhand dancing. But, you know, there's, that's kind of a legalist type thing. That's a kind of this rule. I mean, where did that come from? I, I grew up in the South, you know, and, and, and you know, with the things you, it's, it's, there's reasons, kind of cultural reasons behind certain things like that. But the thing is, sometimes we, we're confused about the rules. You know, does it say, no, does it say, what, what are the rules? What can you do? What can't you do? An, another time, too, I remember, never forget this, the first about 10 years of my ministry, two years in seminary and eight years after I got out of seminary, I was a youth pastor. I was a student ministries pastor. Had a lot of kids in the group that were just like, it was so cool because I loved, I loved it. Students, students when they come to Christ, especially those who are really on fire for Christ, are so edgy. I mean, they'll say anything. They will. I love to take students that, you know, have a great testimony. We call it testifying, uh, you know, before a group and let them, let them share their testimony. And we were having this one, one night at church and, and uh, on, on a Sunday night, we had Sunday night services at our church then. And, and uh, they, um, uh, they asked me to put together the service that night. I said, sure, no problem. And and so I did, and I thought, first of all, this one kid had just come to Christ, and this kid was on fire for God. I mean, this, this kid was like unreal. He, in the first two months after he became a Christian, he went around and witnessed to every one of his friends, and half of them came to Christ. I mean, it was unreal. And I'm going, hey, we got to hear this kid. And so he got up, and he gave about a three- to four-minute testimony. That's all he did. And it was great. It was fantastic. 
But it was, you know, it was a big church and all the people there, and I, they weren't quite used to, to him. And uh, right after the service, I had to go rescue him from three or four people that had surrounded him and basically was rebuking him because he wore a hat in church. And, and, and I was going, what's the deal? I mean, what's the deal? This kid just shared about his love for Christ. He, yeah, he's, you know, tattoos are a little bit different than most everybody else's. I don't know if you've had any of those or not. But uh, the thing is, is that, you know, this kid was, they, were, they, they didn't listen to what he said. They, all they listened to was, like, all they thought about was what was on his head. They had this legalistic mindset. There's certain things you don't do and certain things you do. The problem is, the problem is, is it took me almost two, the kid, kid didn't come back to church for two years. Because of that. And I'm going like, it took me two years of working a lot to getting back involved in the youth group. Where I, I mean, he was like on fire for God before that. And he kind of got turned off as a lot. The, the thing that I, that I found is this to be true. There's a lot of rule followers in churches that are not Christ followers. A lot of rule followers that are not Christ followers. See, the problem is, is when we think we're to follow rules, we're wrong. Because the Bible says, who are we to follow? Jesus Christ. We're to follow Jesus Christ, not a bunch of arbitrary rules. And when we follow Christ, what do we become? We become more like Christ. Today I want to continue this process of, of unwrapping what it says in the, in the book of Job. Is we'll look at kind of the big picture of Job. And the, and the key verse that I began to look at the first week, and I've looked at it every week, is chapter what? 42, verse 12. Very end, the last book in the book of Job uh, the last chapter in the book of Job, but it says this, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. And so what we've been talking about, the shape of the series has been this. What does that mean, that the Lord blessed the latter part of his life more than the former part? Because if you look at it, what that says is all of his life was blessed. The first part was blessed, the second part was blessed even more. So he lived what we call a blessed life. And, and what does that look like in regard to what we can see in, in Job? And so we've been talking about some keys to living a blessed life. What does it mean for Job? What does it mean for us? And here's the four things we've looked at so far. The first week was this. If we want to live a blessed life, we don't give up on the God who has never given up on you. Job never gave up on the God who had never given up on him. Secondly, we talked about that we need to, if you want to live a blessed life, stop making excuses and start making a difference. Job didn't try to make excuses about everything. He got in some disagreements, and we'll talk about that today with his friends, but, but he, he realized his life was about making a difference. And so if you want to live a blessed life, that's one of the keys. The third uh, um, key that we talked about two weeks ago that I talked about was that we must understand if we want to live a blessed life that I am a steward, that means I am a manager of all things, and God's the owner of everything. We don't own anything. It's all his. And we're just called to, to manage it well for him. The fourth thing last week that Chris and Justin talked about was this key. And is if we're to live a blessed life, we must learn to seek God's voice and surrender to the voice of Christ. Not only seek it, but surrender to it as well. But today I want to talk about the fifth key that I believe I see very clearly in the book of Job because it's, it's throughout chapters 3 through 37, evidence tons. And I don't have time to cover all the chapters, all those chapters today. But in, I'll just pull out a few verses, key verses. And this is the key, the fifth key. I must push past the performance trap. I must push past the performance trap. If I'm going to live a blessed life, I've got to get past this thing which says I have to measure up to God because, by, by crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. That living the Christian life we sometimes think is this, this performance thing. 
I've got to earn God's love, in a sense. And what we call it many times is legalism. Now, let me explain what legalism is and what it's not. First of all, though, let me say this. As followers of Christ, we're called to live holy lives, right? We're called to live holy lives. Where the Bible is clear, black and white, where there's things that are clear, black and white, that is not legalism. That is conforming to Christ. Give me give you an example. I mean, I've had people from time to time that come to me and talk to me about situations, and they'll say, this is what's going on in my life. And I say, well, you know, one of the problems you have that's clear as you shared, is that you're having sex outside of marriage. And they'll look at me and go, oh, you're just a legalist. No. That is clear in Scripture. Not just one Scripture, but multitudes of Scripture. Says that, it says sex outside of marriage is wrong. Sex inside of marriage is great. That's what it says. Okay? I don't know if it says it that way, but it kind of says it that way. Okay? So that's one thing. But it's not legalistic to, to say that to someone and to encourage them to, to clean up their act a little bit. Another one is this. Another example is this. I have so many people who says, well, you know, it's all right, to, it's all right to just to go out and do anything you want to with alcohol. Now, while the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to take a drink, it does say that it's wrong to be drunk. It is wrong to get so drunk that you wear a lampshade on your head and sing Jimmy Buffett songs. I never saw Jesus doing that anywhere in Scripture, okay? And some people will say, well, you know, you shouldn't. That's, you're just being judgmental. You're just being a legalist. You're just judgmental about that. No, 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 no. That's, that, okay, that's not, that's not legalism. That's the, but where, what legalism is is this. I grew up in a culture in the South, and I, I understand some of you grew up not in the South, but maybe in the same culture. When you grew up, and there were certain words you just didn't say. Like one of the words I could never say, and I could never figure this out why, but I finally figured it out later, was the word darn. Y'all ever said that word, darn? And if you said gosh darn, it was really bad. You could go directly to hell, do not pass go, if you said that. The reason for it was because it was considered equal to the other words that are similar to that, which I am not going to say. Okay? But the reality is, is that there's no word in Scripture that says those words that are wrong, but it's sometimes in culture we said it. For instance, in our culture today, you know, I, I, don't, I know this is something cultural that we do, is a lot of people teach their kids they don't use the word stupid. You know, now, I never did understand that because I just, you know, I know a lot of people say, well, don't waste our... Have you been to schools? That's not the worst word they use there. Nowhere close. But I understand, and so I mean, for those of you who are kids, today, if your parents told you not to use the word stupid or darn or gosh darn, obey them, because it says in Scripture also, it says, children, obey their parents to the Lord, for it is right if you want to live. No, that's not exactly what it says, but it's close. <laughs> right? No, I mean, you know, we supposed to, we're supposed to do that. So the thing is, but the problem so often is, is we make up rules like, you know, like, well, you know, like dancing is against God's will or whatever. And we say those are rules and we make them equal with the Ten Commandments. That's legalism. And we have all these rules that we try to follow because we said, if I can just check off enough of those rules and do them right, then God will love me more. We really believe that a lot of times. But that's so far from the truth of Scripture. 
And the thing that's even worse than that is that legalism says this. Legalism says that if something bad is going on in your life, if you've got some bad stuff happening, guess what? You know what the reason is? You've sinned. Yeah, that's what legalism says. Today I want to go back to the book of Job and we want to look at it for a few minutes and talk about this whole issue, about how to, 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 to break free, free from this whole thing of, of legalism, this whole thing of, of trying to measure up to a standard that, that's impossible to measure up to. And a matter of fact, we don't even have to. So let's look at the uh, book of Job and we're going to start at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. We've looked at this before, but I'm going to refer back to this and then we're going to look at a few other verses throughout a few other chapters. Now, let me say this up front before I read this. The only thing that I know and you know about Job is what? What it says in Scripture. That's all we know. So if it says it in Scripture, I believe it's true. I, I believe the authority of Scripture, the, the, the Bible is authoritarian. It is true. So this is what it says in chapter 1, verse 1, about this guy named Job. It says, in the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. Do not raise your hand, but how many of you would consider yourself blameless and upright? Basically, perfect. Or as close to as perfect as can be. That's what it means here, these words mean. He feared God and he shunned evil. So a description, I mean, this guy was the same guy that remember when we studied it a few weeks ago, we talked about Job, and in the first couple of chapters, God was, God was obviously, you know, as he was having this conversation with Satan, he was saying he held up Job as an example of the kind of the perfect guy. Not perfect, but close as you can get in the world. He told Satan, look at my servant Job. Nobody does it better than him. Right? That's what it says. But then what happened to Job? We know that he lost in the first two chapters. What did he do? He lost almost everything. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his kids. He lost, he lost his health. He lost all those things in the first couple of books of chapters of Job. So how does, how does that deal with your theology then in regard to what, if, you, if you're, something bad happens to you, that, that it's caused, caused by sin? Because the Bible, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1, says that he was blameless and upright. It says he was doing this, possibly, probably doing a better job than any of us in checking all the boxes and doing all the things that were right. He was a blameless man. But then we see in chapter 3 and through 37, which we're going to just glimpse at today very quickly, the next thing that happens in his life, and that's when his church friends show up. His church friends show up, and with friends like this, who needs enemies? Remember, he's lost everything, everything's happened to him. In chapter 4, Job chapter 4, one of his friends talks to him and says to Job, Job, should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? He's going like, I mean, Job, should not, you know, the, your hope be placed in how much you do? Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? His friend was saying, obviously, Job, the problem you have and the reason all this stuff's happened to you is because you oppose God. See, because legalism, like I said, legalism says if something bad happens in your life, it's because you've sinned. It's always a direct result of your sin. 
Then it goes further, another conversation with his friend. In Job chapter 5, it says, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. He's saying, surely some of the sin, some of your sin has caused this. You need to be, dot some more I's, uh, cross some more T's. And then as you read further in the next, in, in, in chapters 3 through 37, these conversations he's having, remember once again what had happened in chapters 1 and 2. Job had lost what? His children. All of his children. All ten of them. And this is what his friend says. This caring, warm, considerate friend. When your children sinned against him, talking about God, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Basically saying to Job, Job, your kids deserved it. They got what they was coming to them. And then he says this, though. He said, well, Job, by the way, verse 5, chapter 8. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. I'm confused. Chapter 1 says he was blameless and upright. Here his friend accuses him the reason all this is happening is because you're not. Who's right? Obviously not his friend. See, legalism says try, do more, try harder. Do more, try harder. That's how you win God's favor. It's kind of like this. Religion says, religion says, God loves you if. God loves you if. But Christianity says, God loves you, period. God loves you, period. So today, what I want to do, the remainder of our time, is I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you four questions that really deal with this whole issue of, of do you live a life, are you living a life where you can, are free from this, this thing of trying to impress God? Do you think that he will love you more because you do certain things? So the first question that's easy to ask is this, do I feel, do I find it hard to believe that Jesus loves me? Do you find it hard to believe that Jesus loves you? I mean, I could talk to people all the time and they're going like, well, Jesus couldn't possibly love me or even use me because you don't know about my past. Now, maybe some people, some of you here may, may you know, may uh, have no problem with that, uh, no, uh, have no problem with answering that question positively. Do I find it hard to believe that Jesus loves me? You go, no, because, and you, but you are probably thinking about it for the wrong reason, because you may be a rule follower. You're going like, well, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I, you get their whole checklist, and you kind of keep it, keep it before you, and, and because you don't do certain things, you think that that's why Jesus would love me, but you're dead wrong. Because that's not what scripture says. Most of us, though, probably are on the other extreme. We're, we're probably thinking that Jesus, it's hard for him to love us because of what we've done, who we are. Would you find it true to find that there are some people that are hard to love? Anybody know anybody that's hard to love? Don't look at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's hard, hard to love. There's some people hard to love. Let me tell you some examples of people I find hard to love. People that, 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 that butt in on your conversation. You're having a conversation with somebody, and those come up and just jump right in the middle of it. And even worse than that is what I call close talkers. You know what a close talker is? I mean, I, one day when we first built the building here, uh, I think it's great in the lobby. I do exit greeting on purpose. Uh, I, do, I will say today, guys, I'm not going to be there exit greet because my wife is homesick with, 
with our two grandkids, and so I'm going to go home as quickly as possible to relieve her of her two to two and four year old duty for the rest of the day. And uh, so I won't be out there. Somebody else will have to do that today, okay? So all of you raise your hands if you're no, not going to do that, okay? Um, but you know, one day I was standing out in the, in the lobby, exit greeting, and, and this guy came up to me and he started, you know, backing me up against the glass almost, you know. And I, but once you get to the, against the glass, you can't go any further, you know. I've seen a bunch of little kids try that. They're running to the glass, you know, bouncing, laying on the floor. I mean, literally, I've seen them laying there, stunned. Uh, I told Mark, quit making the glass so clear. People, little kids think for some reason there's no glass there. And uh, that's part of the deal. But uh, I was out there, and this guy kept talking to me, and he was a close talker, but he was like, right here. I mean, I thought he was going to stick his tongue in my mouth or something. I didn't know what he was going to do. It was nasty. He was that close. And I'm going like, give me some space, dude. Give me some space. Personal space, okay? You know, I have a problem loving people like that because I'm going like, what's your problem? Maybe you have some issues too. I don't know. That's my issue. But... Uh, See, sometimes we think it's hard, it's hard to believe that Jesus loves us, and we try to cover it over, gloss it over there. And how we do this is this. Many people, I found this to be true, the reason some people attend church, and I say this with all love, is because they want to look good enough so that people won't think they're messed up. If I go to church on Sunday and sit there and look good, you know, I mean, we, we don't even have a dress code here like some churches. You know, some churches you walk in, you've got to have a tie if you're a guy, you know, and you have to have, you know, I guess high heels and pantyhose or something if you're a woman. I don't know what women wear, like, you know, makes them cool. Uh, you know, whatever that is. You know, but I've never known. For some reason, we think that makes us more holy. But we could come to church for all the wrong reasons. We can attend because we're thinking, well, if I go to church, I may, may you know, if I go to church and kind of put up with stuff, um, that'll cover up all the junk in my life but you know no no guys i don't know if any guys ever put on a tie and go oh this feels so good and i don't know i never asked ladies about this but i don't know about high heels and pantyhose but i can't imagine oh jesus this is good you know i I don't still see that but we put up with stuff like that so people will think that we got our act together see some of us come to church to cover up the junk in our lives but in our heart, we know this one thing. We cannot fake it with God. And the reason we do that, let me tell you the reason we do that. The reason we do that is we believe that if everyone around us knew everything there is to know about us, no one would love us. I mean, how many of us would like to have somebody follow us around 24-7 for a week with a video camera and videotape everything and let's show up on the big screen? I don't think anybody here would volunteer for that. Unless you're an exhibitionist. That's a psychological problem. Okay. See, we can fake it with people, but we know that we cannot fake it with God But he, because he knows our motives, our hearts, and he no- loves us anyway. Isn't that amazing? He knows our hearts and he loves us anyway? See, it's, it's kind of like this. If you're a Christian, and let me define what that means. A Christian is a child of God. It's a person who... Has been, there's been a time in your life when you've recognized that you're a sinner separated from God, that you could not work your way to God, that Jesus Christ paid for your sins, that you're going to tr- place your trust in Jesus for salvation, and you give your life to Jesus, that's what a Christian is, then guess what is? You're a child of God, and He loves you. He loves you. Not because of what you've done, but because of your position with Him. It's kind of like this. Um, 
As a father, I've had, I have two kids. And I remember the first time that I saw my kids. I was there for both, both the births. Um, 30 plus years ago for one and 25 years ago for the other. And I, remember, I still remember, remember it vividly because I was thinking, how do you love this child? Because, you know, there's a strange thing. There's a strange, really strange thing. Uh, for some reason, people always say the same thing when they see their ch- kid for the first time. Aren't they beautiful or cute or something? I've been in a room or close to it right after a lot of babies are born. And most of them look like E.T. <laughs> Their head's misshapen, you know. They have all these issues going. They're not beautiful. Only a parent could love a child that looks like that. Mine included. But we say that. Why? Because we choose to love them. And, and let me ask you another question. I mean, what did your child do the first year of their life to earn your love? Think about it. Long and hard. You can't think of anything. They kept you up. You got no sleep. You look like a zombie. Your eating schedule was messed up. They pooped and peed on you. Literally. Happened to me yesterday with my grandson. See, I don't love my kids. One, because they're so beautiful or because they did anything to earn my love. I love them because they're mine. That's the way all of us think about that. I mean, your spouse, probably the reason, one of the reasons you loved them was because they responded to you. But your kids didn't. So you make a choice, and that's how God loves us. See, God does not love us based on our performance. He loves us based on our position as his child. He will not love you any more or any less because of what you do. You know, at this, at this point in time, somebody probably screaming out, don't tell them about grace! Because they'll go out and do any old thing they want to if you talk about grace too much. Now, let me tell you what the reality is. Once you understand the kind of love God has for you, what you'll do is you'll go out the door and you'll do anything for Him. Because you've never experienced the kind of love that He gives you. See, grace means God, God didn't save us because we performed well. It, he saved us because he chose to. That's what grace is. In Titus 3, I love this because this, this is a, actually a letter written to some Christian followers. that says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. See, so often what the problem is, is we focus on, we focus on, well, we don't live a blessed life. We focus on what we do and don't do instead of what God did. I mean, how can we ever think in our wildest imaginations that we can impress God? Look at what I did, God. Here's the guy that created the universe. Top that one. There's nothing you can do to impress God. Nothing I can do to impress God. 
And when we see people having bad behavior in Scripture, what happens is God turns it around. It says this in Luke 13. He's talking to the people of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, uh, those sent to you. Let me stop there. Would you consider that bad behavior? Uh, anybody have? Would you consider that bad behavior? Yes. Stoning people and killing people are bad behavior. And I'm not being a legalist. It says that's about here. Then he says this. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. He said, you're doing all this bad stuff, but I still want you to come home to me. That's the, how much God loves us. So the first thing, the first question to ask, and this was the longest one by far, the first question is this. It says, do I find it hard to believe that Jesus loves me? If you do, you probably need to rethink some things. Number two, second question, do I always feel like I'm disappointing Jesus? Do I always feel like I'm disappointing Jesus? You don't have to answer that, by the way. You're just thinking of it right now. Do I disappoint Jesus? You know, right now in the sports season, we're kind of toward the end of a baseball season. Based on who you're rooting for right now, you're either disappointed or you're excited. I'm not going to tell you which team that you're disappointed about again. <laughs> and football season's coming up. And based upon how things go, you know, some of you will be disappointed or excited, right? That's what's going to happen. But let me explain this something to you. And I thought long and hard about this before I make this statement, but I believe it is totally true. You can never, you have never disappointed God. You have never disappointed God. You may tell you why? Because disappointment is based on us being surprised by an outcome. Is God ever surprised by an outcome? He knows what you have done and what you're going to do, and he gives us grace anyway. He's never looked at you and said, I can't believe you did that. God's never thought that. I mean, when Jesus was talking to some of his disciples right before he was to be crucified, he said this, and Jesus told them in Matthew 26, the very, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of, of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Peter, foot in mouth Peter, even if, I, if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Once again, he's wrong. Keep that in mind. Then Jesus says, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus called Peter to follow him and eventually calls him to be the leader of the church in the early church after he goes to heaven, did, did Jesus know that Peter would deny him beforehand? Yep. Did he know that he was imperfect and constantly stick his foot in his mouth? Yep. He knew all those things. Still, he calls him anyway. He called him anyway. If you want to read a beautiful story of how uh, Jesus reinstates Peter, turn to, don't turn to it right now, but read sometime John chapter 21 because it's this great story of how after all the stuff when Peter had denied, uh, denied Jesus, how Peter is, and he repents of his sin, Peter repents of his sin, Jesus said, you're the guy who's going to lead it all. See, no matter what your sin, no matter... If you walk away from your, if you'll do this, if you'll walk away from your sin and turn your life over to Christ, he will use you for something great because you can never disappoint Jesus. Not ever. Question number three. 
Does it seem like Jesus is a hard man who wants me to just work harder? I've had people describe their relationship with God that way. I just can't do enough. I always feel like it's a burden. I've heard that a thousand times. I don't know about you guys. Uh, any of you here ran a, ran a marathon? This isn't a marathon crowd. Our first, uh, I don't see anybody here running a marathon. <gasps> well, okay, there's one. Okay, okay, two. Okay, I knew there's some people here ran marathons. There must be the, the first service had like seven or eight people that ran marathons. And I'm going, wow, that's incredibly cool. Don't expect me to be there, by the way. I won't. I might run the 5K again this year. We'll see. But the issue is this. I understand this at marathons, and I've watched them on TV. I've been fairly close to a couple of them to see what's going on. There's always these tons of volunteers at marathons, right? Tons of volunteers. They're out there on the course. And if something happens to you and a person falls down or, or they pass out, which happens in marathons and stuff like that, what do those people do, those volunteers? They come up to you, they, they help you, right? They don't come up to you and you're laying on the ground. They don't do what a legalist would do and go like, you, you, hey you, get up off the ground. You need to try harder. You must not have hydrated too well before you started the day. What is your problem? See, that's what a legalist will do. Sometimes so often in the life of the church, we do that to our wounded. People are down and we just keep piling stuff on them, more expectations. Try harder, do more. See, the message of Christ is not do more, try harder. The thing that I found is this is true. If you're here today and you're hurting, you don't need anybody to tell you you're hurting, right? You know it. You know you're hurting. What you need is you need someone to help you through the problem. That's what Jesus did and does. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, it says, and he saw two brothers, Simon, uh, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So what does he do? He sees them, and he says, he says, hey, Peter, hey, Andrew, get your act together, then I can call you. Is that what he said? No. Y'all can read, right? Even though I say it's southern, y'all. Um, it says, he says, no, come follow me. Did he know that Peter and Andrew were two messed up individuals like all of us are in some areas? Yeah, he knew it. But he says, come follow me. He doesn't say get all your act together first, then you can follow me. And then he says, then I will do what I will make. I will make you fishers of men. I will begin the process of changing you step by step. That's why we're always talking at Great Oaks about, you know, taking your next step with God. Everybody here, me included, has a next step. I don't know what that next step is. For some of you, it may be just acknowledging that God is God. Others may be to say, really, I want to believe and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Others will have to do maybe a thing I talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know, uh, your finances need to be lined up with what God says. Whatever the step may be, God says that if you want to move in toward God, you have to take steps with him. You, you follow him one step at a time. See, it's about who am I becoming. And I found this to be true. People that are following Jesus, guess what happens to them? They become more like Jesus. Every time. But it's one step at a time. It's not like, you know, it's not keeping a chart and everything. See, the, the other problem is this. So often, until you take your next step, you're stuck. Until you take your next step, you will not grow. That's why there's so many people that go to churches, and I've told you this, you can, you can sit in a church all your life, you know, you can sit in a garage all your life, you'll never become a car. Remember that one? 
You sit in the church all your life, you'll never become a Christian just by sitting in the church. You can, and it literally, what we see so often, people who are kind of stuck, they've been at one place, and they go to church every Sunday, and then they go out and they're the same grumpy person that they were 20 years ago. But Jesus says to us, he says it this way, he says in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does that sound like the guy who wants to beat you down? Say, so you better follow the rules. And he's a person who accepts you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to become more of who he is. But you do it because you love him, not because you're trying to earn love. Final question is this. Final question is this. One verse of scripture, one story, we're done. Does it seem like Jesus is distant and uninterested? Does it seem like, is that your view of Jesus, that he's distant and uninterested in you? Isaiah 43 says it this way. This is a great way of describing God's relationship to us. He says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That is the picture of a God who is close and interested in you. Let me close with this illustration. True story. Happened two days ago. Three days ago, something like that, a couple days ago. As I shared with you, the, our two grandkids, a two-year-old Levi and a four-year-old Cooper, are uh, staying with us for a few days while parents are out of town. And uh, we, we, I'm, we love to do that, spoil them and do all kinds of stuff, you know. And, and we found out a long time ago, the first time we kept them, that there are certain things you do at night when you go to bed with kids that age, right? You know what I'm talking about? You have pattern, habits, always have to be the same. If, they, if you mess it up. So we found out what their patterns and habits were. And so every, every night with uh, Cooper, the oldest one, the four-year-old, he always has to, we have to go in and we have to lay with him for two minutes. Two minutes. I don't know if he know, even knows what two minutes is, but two minutes. And then we have to, we have to uh, hug him, give him a kiss, and tell him good night, see you tomorrow. I mean, that's part of the ritual, okay? A couple nights ago, a couple nights ago, um, my wife and I were doing the rituals with Levi and, and, and Cooper. And in the middle of it, right before I'd, I'd already gone and told Levi goodnight, Vicki was still doing that with, uh, with Levi, um, I got a phone call, so I ran in the you know, other room. Should, should have just ignored it. But, you know, like how we all do now, their phone rings, are, you know, and we have to go take it because it might be somebody important. You know, probably not. Uh, and so I ran in to take it. So somebody, you know, it was, it was, it was not... It wasn't really important, but it, it, could, have, it could have waited. But I, I talked for a while, so the person got finished. And after a few minutes, I don't know how long it was, 15, 20 minutes. Um, this is not late at night. It's only like 8 o'clock at night when they go to bed. So I went into, and I very easily opened the door to look into uh, Cooper's room, or the room in our house. And he'd already fallen asleep. That's like a miracle. He never does that. But I went ahead and snuck in the room just to see if he was, or if he was, you know, really faking it or whatever. And leaned over, kissed him on the forehead, and he was asleep. He didn't wake up, and then I just prayed over him and walked out of the room. 
The next morning, Cooper comes up to me. This is Cooper. You have to know him. He looks at me, Grandpa, I'm mad at you. I didn't know what I'd done. I'd only seen him for 30 seconds. I mean, what did I do this morning that I was mad at me about? He'd remember the night before. He thought I didn't come into the room, and he said, Grandpa, you didn't come in and kiss me goodnight. And I said, wait, I'm sorry that I got distracted, but I did come in. I kissed you on the forehead. I prayed over you and walked out of the room. I said, Cooper, the reality is this, and I didn't use that word, but I said, it's, the truth is this, is that even though, uh, you might all have known I'm there, but I was there. See, that's how God is. You may not even know he's there, but he's there. His description, uh, description in scripture is that he's a loving God who wants to, more than anything to draw his children to him. And so often what we do is we think the only way he could love us is if we keep all the rules. And that's not what it's about. It's about coming to him, trusting in him, and walking with him. And he will change us. Yes, he will. But he loves us right now. He loves you if you've tr put your trust in him just as much as he will ever love you, no more, no less. Because that's what he chooses to do. It's not based on your performance. So what do you choose? Do you want to live a blessed life? Choose to push back from the performance trap. Trust God for who he is. Let's pray. God, we thank you this day for your many blessings, and we pray that you would just enable us to understand clearly exactly what it is that you want us to do and be. It's not about finding a bunch of rules and, and thinking that just because we obey some rules that, that that will earn more love with you because it won't. That's not what scripture says. No, God, as, as we build a relationship with you, as we trust you more and more, as we walk with you, you begin to change us, yes, and certain things in our life will change. But it won't make you love us more, God. Thank you so much for that fact because that's the only... I mean, as much as we like love our kids, even when they're little babies and they don't do anything really to earn love, that's still imperfect, God, because we're imperfect people. But the kind of love you have for us is perfect in every way. So guide us now, God, as, as we examine what it means to live this blessed life. Let us look at all the, the different things. We've got two more weeks to go in this. Help us to understand clearly how to... Begin to implement these in our life, God. Trusting your plan for our life, God. Help us to examine ourselves today and ask ourselves, how do we perceive you, God? Do we see you as, as distant and uninterested? Or do we feel like and understand you as a loving father who's trying to draw us to himself? God, I thank you for the lessons that are in the book of Job, an Old Testament book that so often uh, gets a bad rap because sometimes we just take the first couple of chapters out of context. Guide us now, God, that we would just continually seek you and seek to follow you because we love you and because you love us. Guide us this day, God, and all we say and do. May we honor you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.